0: So by any means necessary, do radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luckman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the recent police killing in D.C. of Antoine Gilmore, also going to be touching on the sweetie meal at McDonald's and how uh, celebrity worship culture and the diversity economy uh, tricks us into thinking we're making progress. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind.
1: You know, I was wrong yesterday, forgetting that there is another day in August today, but that's okay. Because it's entirely fitting to wrap up Black August officially today by talking about trauma. The trauma we who struggle against this system of oppression and exploitation in the name of capitalism endure during that struggle, trying desperately to keep our humanity and our sanity intact and our hope buoyant. And of course, the trauma of those we are honored to speak for and with, the deeply and directly impacted by the violence of this system in so many ways. As we look through the history, like we did yesterday, of the racist police and white mob violence against black people and Chicano people, it's easy. To look at the horror of that violence and focus on the channeled rage of the perpetrators and wonder how human beings could whip themselves into such a frenzy of hatred to commit such barbarous acts upon others simply because they are black or Chicano or immigrants or gay or trans and are seen as a threat to whatever they consider their way of life is. When really all they're saying is that they don't want to share the little they have with anyone who's not like them. But that's always the preoccupation with these incidents. And it's important to examine them from that perspective. Sure, the motives and the logic and the ideologies and the political orchestrations behind it all. Absolutely. But what's often lost in this analysis of history that I love to examine and connect to today is the trauma that our people have suffered because of this ongoing horror. Imagine the quiet moments of anguish and pain and deep, soul-wrenching sorrow that Mamie Till, Emmett Till's mother, endured after her child was lynched by racist white men in Mississippi. The persistent terror and anxiety living in the same city as the people and the cops who assaulted the black teen teenagers during Axe Handle Saturday in Jacksonville, Florida, of the families of Carl Cooper, Fred Temple and Aubrey Pollard and all the young folks who were assaulted and tortured and brutalized by the cops, the murderous cops during that raid on the Algiers Hotel in Detroit, Michigan, the families of Lynn Ward, Angel Diaz and Ruben Salazar and all of the injured after the cops brutally attacked protesters during the Chicano moratorium in Los Angeles. Imagine the terror. Their communities lived in after those incidents, terror of the police, terror of white people, terror of the court system, of judges, of bailiffs. Imagine the feelings of rage and justifiable hatred at the injustices committed against them for no other reason than they were Black or Chicano, and they were insisting upon the recognition of rights they believed they had as citizens and human beings. Then to come to the realization that they weren't even seen as human beings by the people who brutalized them, people who may have been people who own or work at stores they frequent, may have been teachers, may have been clergy, may have been bus drivers, firefighters, clerk at the post office. Imagine feeling that rage and hatred, but also feeling a crushing sense of hopelessness when you realize that the people who brutalized you took your friend or your family member's life for being black or brown and having the nerve to demand to be treated with human dignity are actually all around you. And you will never know who was among them and who wasn't. Imagine the anxiety that creates when you and your family and your friends have to go shopping or to do business or have to go to a government office or have to go to the courthouse. Imagine the anxiety building as you walk through the streets and buildings filled with people who you know make an effort not to see you. And when they do, they make an effort to see you as nothing. But you also know that they will work just as hard to brutalize you, given an excuse that suits them well enough. Imagine living in the neighborhood where the police who killed your loved ones still patrol the streets. Imagine living in a town or a city where the judges and the juries who acquitted the cops who killed and brutalized your people also live. And some of them might be the branch librarian near you, the teller at your bank, a teacher at your kids' school. Imagine the hyper-awareness that we instill in our children to always be on their best behavior, never step or speak out of line, don't run, don't laugh, don't talk too loud, don't cut up in public, don't look menacing, because we never know if these people who are not us in our neighborhoods will turn on us when and how. The anxiety, the hyper-vigilance, the completely justifiable paranoia, the intergenerational trauma that colonized and oppressed people, particularly black and brown and indigenous people live with today, is also traced back through that history of struggle that we talk about all the time. We're not struggling against ideology here, folks. No, we're struggling against the brutality against us that the ideology creates. So, yeah, we rail against capitalism, but not just as some esoteric concept. Rather, we challenge the very real and tangible and brutal actions committed against working class and poor people in order for the system and ideology of capitalism to continue to be propped up. Because the exploitation of the labor and the perpetuation of oppressive conditions for working class and poor people is the only way for capitalists to continue to benefit. And we rail against white supremacy, not as a mere ideology, as a concept, but as the blood-soaked violence that we have seen committed against us throughout this history right up to today. The strain of racist police and vigilante violence that runs through the history of this nation continues in the streets today, in our neighborhoods today, continuing to take the lives of black and brown and poor men and women that white supremacy sees as expendable. But we still continue to fight to preserve our humanity, the humanity of our people, while we still fight for our lives as the very forces gunning for us are patrolling our streets with badges and guns with a logo that says, They protect and serve, but the word that's the most important is left out, they protect and serve capitalism. Certainly not us. So it is fitting to end Black August, I think talking about trauma, because to be among the exploited and oppressed class in this system is to live a life rife with trauma, unacknowledged, undiagnosed, untreated too often, but it's there nonetheless. But that's why we continue to fight, to finally, one day, see an end to these systems, so that finally, one day, we can live free of their traumas. Follow Luke Mann Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mann Nation for lots of great content.
0: And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Luke Mann, And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us.
2: By Any Means Necessary. And we're
0: going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. We are now very happy to be joined by Lashana Greer, the cousin of Antoine Gilmore, and Jay Brown, the founder of Community Shoulders. Lashana, Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Now, in the early morning hours of Wednesday, August 25th, a D.C. police officer identified as Sergeant Ennis Jevrick shot and killed 27-year-old Antoine Gilmore. The very next day, uh, Antoine's family, along with the Party for Socialism and Liberation and Community Shoulders, were able to organize a rally in March calling for justice for Antoine. Uh, There was another march uh, uh, this weekend that was called as well, and and there's really been lots of support, both online and in person. And so, uh, LaShawn, I wanted to start with you. If you could help us understand just what happened to your cousin and what are you all demanding in terms of accountability? from the D.C. police?
3: Um, We have been trying to riddle our brains with what actually happened. And the only conclusion that we have come up with is that Antoine was murdered. Um, It was a crime committed. And that it was no way that we were supposed to be here having this conversation today. That is a big part of what we feel like happened to our cousin or our family. It's it's sad. It's a lot of emotions going on. Um, because we're trying to get justice. I don't think I myself personally or any of our family have had a time to really understand what what's going on. Um, we're almost on a week of him being gone and it it doesn't it doesn't hurt any less. I'm barely Sleeping—it's—it's it's just a lot. It—it's um, a lot for our family right now. The only thing that we're demanding—the only things that we're demanding—is peaceful protest. Um, we appreciate everyone who has come out to show their support for Antoine, but we want to keep things peaceful. Um, we demand a conviction, not just an indictment. We demand an independent investigation. And we don't want MPD to investigate their own case. We want them to be taken off. Those are the things that we're demanding at this time.
0: Yeah, and, you know, it's still so fresh. And just to give people an idea of what really happened, I mean, according to reports, uh, police received uh, a call of someone who was unconscious in their car. And, you know, instead of sending, you know, an ambulance or something to, to help this person, they they sent police and um when the police arrived and saw Antoine in his car asleep uh they also reportedly saw a, a gun on his waistline and at one point Antoine woke up and reportedly uh, attempted to drive away at which point he was shot 10 times and killed I mean a completely just a, a brutal and senseless thing to have happened and you know Jay this uh is really part of a long-running pattern with uh, the D.C. police because you're not just uh, a founder and organizer of Community Shoulders. You're also the the uncle uh, of Jeffrey Price, who was also killed by um, uh, uh, D.C. police. And something that I think Jeffrey and Antoine sort of have in common is that there's uh, a whole uh, issue of uh, body cam footage, although I think the footage released by the police in Antoine's case isn't terribly uh, helpful, but there were some other footage that was posted on social media by bystanders that I think um, perhaps gives a little bit of clarity. But uh, what I think is also clear, Jay, is that uh, the D.C. police just have a long history of these uh, kinds of uh, killings, whether it's Antoine or Jeffrey Price or Rafael Briscoe or Marquise Austin or so many people we could name. And I mean, it's just clear that, you know, we'll have to keep organizing and really fighting to, to, to come against this.
4: I Absolutely agree, Sean. That there's a pattern in practice with M.P.D. Um, with using excessive force, violating constitution and violating constitutional rights of our African American or Black and Brown community. Uh, my nephew was unfortunately killed in 2018 with, with by M.P.D. They violated their own policy, violated city city policies. They just violated him. They violated the constitution constitutional rights of my nephew. The problem was. Um, I'm Martin Luther King, my way through this process. And I should have had Malcolm X my way through this process because there was a lack of transparency. The officer who murdered my nephew um, was given a five-day suspension. And we didn't know until the back end about two years later that this had even was a it was even a disciplinary process. There was an auditor's report that came out. The auditor's report came, said the investigation was so poorly conducted they couldn't even come to a, a conclusion about, but you know, a conclusion on the process of what was going on. And we don't want that for LaShonda. You know, we want to make sure that the whole family um, case never gets swept in the rug, and that we see everything from an advocate's uh, standpoint, for everything. We want the transparency. We don't want this family to be like my family. Here it is three years later. And we still feel like we haven't put his soul to rest. Soul to rest. And, and and we want peaceful protest. But at some point, MPD's culture has to change. And the only way it's going to change is if we change it.
1: Yeah, you know, definitely. I, I, I want to ask about the culture of MPD. In particular, in reference to the way they responded to this young man, to Antoine, who was asleep in his car, um, but the police responded with a uh, a, a ballistic shield, uh, basically a riot shield. Several cops uh, who were fully armed. They didn't approach Antoine as you know just a man asleep in his car, Lashana. But that is a stark departure from the way law enforcement responded to a man who was literally threatening to blow up the Capitol building a few weeks ago. So I mean in in the in in the contradictory responses of law enforcement to your cousin and to the incident at the Capitol, what do you think that says to you about the way MPD in particular treats the lives of young black men and women in this city that are supposed to be their constituents and the way law enforcement in general responds to folks who do not look like us.
3: Um, Well, we know that there has been a long history of troubles with the Metropolitan Police Department and African-American men and women Um, So that is something that we're at this point, it's unfortunate to say, but we're not surprised about. But what I am surprised about is that my cousin was met with a death sentence and they were able to talk down someone who had a bomb. They were, you know, the police have been able to not take um, some of the people who stormed the Capitol. Some of them were not met with a death sentence and they were actually inside and storming the Capitol. Um, and rioting in a non-peaceful manner and could have possibly, um, you know, done things to our league, our government officials. Um, my cousin was asleep in his vehicle. And uh, I think that it is important to say again that he, uh, he the police got the call for unconscious man And that there were no EMT, no paramedics. Um, Nobody called to help my cousin because they didn't know anything that was going on. What they knew was they seen a black man and allegedly they seen a firearm. That was not enough for him to be met. I'm sorry.
0: No, it's fine. It's totally fine. I mean, it's, Still, something so fresh, like you're saying, uh, it hasn't even been a whole uh, week yet. I don't think since this has happened, very impactful on uh, Antoine's family and his community. And you know, Jay, I feel like honestly, this is what this is what I think people don't really see a lot is sort of the the ongoing impacts that this racist police violence has on families and on communities, and you know, the the broader issue. Is the presence of police? What I should say is the over-policing, right, of Black communities in Washington D.C., particularly as the city is going over this a um, uh, rapid rate of gentrification and uh, displacement. And we recently got um, a new police chief in uh, Chief Conti who, before becoming chief, was a part of the leadership of the NSID, the, the Narcotics and Special Investigation Division, which has its own uh, deeply troubling uh, history with violence in terms of uh, uh, the jump-out squads and, and the gun unit. And, you know, uh, not that long ago, there were issues of uh, racist T-shirts being worn by officers in, in some of these units. So literally uh, a gang culture, because we've been talking about the culture of the D.C. police, right? And so we're talking about an institution that conceives of itself as a kind of army with the black communities of Washington, D.C. Uh, being seen as enemy combatants. And so, you know, we see that oftentimes the, the city government will support the police um, whenever they brutalize or, or, or kill someone. And so I think it's important to sort of, you know, raise this issue. Uh, about this because, you know, uh, speaking of, you know, uh, breaking rules, I mean, even Chief Conti had to acknowledge that uh, DC police broke their own regulations when they fired at a moving vehicle, which they're not supposed to do. And so, you know, it, it, time and again, we see the cops even breaking their own rules, let alone people's, you know, violating people's human rights and things like that. And uh, uh, so, Jay, it, it just seems like we have to continue to, you know, really push the issue and make it known that although the police act above the law, they aren't above the law, and they aren't above accountability, and we really have to hold them to account, especially in a moment like this when they take someone's life.
4: Absolutely. I agree, Sean. One of the things that community shoulders um, do in the community is we try to fill in the gaps. We can't change the role. We can't change how police or act in their roles, but we can change the roles that they're in. So we try to fill in the gaps. Our police are not social workers. They're not case workers. They're not substitute teachers. They're not step parents. And so it takes um, members of a community and organizations such as Community Shoulders to fill in those gaps to try to eliminate the MPD contract with the community as much as possible. Because we see that with all the training that they claim to have, all the professionalism they claim to uh, be, they still have that uh, overseer, gang-like mentality that when they are called or when they interact with the community, they just see um, black people as no more than uh, a target, uh, um, a shooting target. And, and it, this or excessive force by using vehicle, whatever their choice of weapon is, the excessive force has to stop, especially when it comes to our African-American community. So we have to eliminate their, uh, and minimize their contact uh, with our community.
0: Definitely. And, and, you know, Jackie, Jay raises a couple of very important points, I think, because he talks about how, you know, his group seeks to fill in the gaps because he's absolutely right. The, The cops are they're literally not designed as an institution to tend to the social needs of communities. They are not equipped to provide food, clothes, shelter, housing, health care, uh, education, gainful employment and, and all those sorts of things. And I say it all the time on the show. The police are put in poor, working and oppressed communities as a military solution to uh, uh, basically economic problems. Right. And so this is why I think this kind of community care. Right. That I think uh, not only groups like community shoulder shows, but really I think is a part of, you know, a DC culture in a sense. There's this notion of uh, a sense of community, a sense of collective care and um, an idea that's very popular in the movement of, you know, we keep us safe. We see that the police don't do it right. right. This is a brutal, um, just a, a bloody, you know, a, a death bringing institution. And so it is the people then Right. Who uh, uh, are there to promote life and life giving resources and institutions while trying to fight this system that tries to stamp out that very humanity, you know.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And part of this this culture of community care and collective care that used to be a lot more common, I think, in D.C., but we, you know, and and across a lot of cities uh, where, you know, poor working class, uh, black and brown folks lived because we were the only ones we had to depend on. We did do a lot more depending on each other and looking out for each other. There was not a whole lot of calling the cops for you know things that we could take care of for each other so you know this is not an indictment against uh, any particular person i always caution though when we are talking about community building and and i love the name of the organization community shoulders that we we in the community have to look over our shoulders and look out for one another so if there is someone in a position that seems to be that person seems to be vulnerable, maybe they're not feeling well. You know, we go check on them. We go see if they can check on them. Our first response as members of the community, as members of the collective who are keeping us safe, our first response should never be to call the cops on our people. Our first response should be, what can I do? And then reach out to organizations. If if we have reached the end of our ability to help reach out to organizations who can provide the support that's needed. But clearly, as you said, Sean, the cops do not keep us safe. And we're seeing this again.
0: Definitely. And, you know, just this past weekend, I was at a it was a national rally and march for the families of victims of police violence. And there were just so many stories, so many families, and these families were were white, they were black, they were Latin, and there was just a lot. There were stories about people who were killed by police because they were in mental distress or because they were having some medical issue. And again, uh, instead of responding with care, uh, they respond with their violence. So this is just this is just how uh, police operate under this system. And you know, Lashana, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is who was. Antoine Gilmore, the person, the human being, because this is what I think gets obscured and gets, I think, sometimes pushed aside when these incidents happen, particularly when, you know, oftentimes the police and the media, you know, try to uh, uh, skew the narrative about who a person was and what their life was like to basically try to, to, to justify what was done to them. And I was at the, um, the first rally for Antoine uh, last Thursday. And to see, you know, family and friends just pouring their heart out about how they felt about this person. I mean, the loss, it, it was palpable. You could feel it, right? And so what would you like for people to know about Antoine Gilmore as a person and just who
3: he really was? Um, well, first, I just want to touch on um. One thing, really quickly, uh, along with the march, I've been one of my good friends. Her son was killed by the police in Prince George's County as well. So she's been helping me get through a lot of things that I'm going through. So I just want to be able to say his name as well, because we still don't have justice for Amir Brooks as well, who was chased by the police and um, injured. passed away a few days later. So I just want to, you know, say justice for Amir Brooks as well and note, which is the hashtag that is dedicated to Amir Brooks. But Antoine as a whole was a person who loved his family. He was goofy. He was silly. He was the strong person in our family. Whenever, you know, anything was going on in the family, He always tried to get us back together. He was like the father of the whole family. He was just amazing. He just loved so hard. He loved making new friends. He loved being around people. He loved music, working on cars, Um, especially classics. He loved classics. He just loved being outside. He loved being around people. He loved helping people. I'm not going to mention anything that the media has said about my cousin because we just want to keep everything that we know about him to be as pure as possible. And what we do know is that this is not something that he deserved. And so I would give people the shirt off his back. He would try to help anyone in need. He just, he was so amazing of a person. And he didn't deserve anything that happened to him at all. He was just amazing. And this is, this is a loss that will go on forever. Because we won't be able to see that smile. We won't be able to hear him cracking jokes with us. His holidays come in, we won't be able to see him. Like, it hurts really, really bad for our family. His sisters. His nieces and nephews, just his friends, it hurts so bad. Um, it's just, it's very unfortunate. Um, and it's, it's as exhausted as I am, because I'm barely sleeping and barely eating, I'm going to get justice for him. And it's sad, uh, just that he was taken away from here. By someone who was supposed to protect and serve and failed him very miserably. Someone who was supposed to be a veteran of uh the police force for fourteen years, someone who should have known policy, someone who should not have been trigger happy. And um it it's it's just upsetting and disheartening to know that of all the police out there, only one police fired. Was so the danger to everyone else and how were you the only one? that picked up on this danger. That is, um, it's just still mind-boggling on why my cousin was met with Ten Shots, which is their full magazine. Why was it emptied into a moving vehicle? And why was there not more policies that were followed? And I just believe that it is disheartening and he's home on administrative leave and uh, he should be indicted and he should
2: be convicted. So Definitely.
0: Well, Lashana, we want to give our uh, deepest thoughts and condolences to you and your family on uh, during this very difficult time. And we want to thank both you and Jay Brown of Community Shoulders for joining us today. We'll be right back here on By Any Means Necessary.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're doing our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, the editor of techforthepeople.org. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh,
5: great to be back. Thanks so
0: much. Absolutely. And Chris, it's being reported that there are some privacy issues uh, 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 concerning the uh, popular streaming services that so many of us use and you know uh, this is uh, I think been uh, centered around uh, companies like Disney Plus and Roku and Netflix these types of platforms I mean obviously streaming services have been uh, popular for years I feel like most people have a couple if not a few that we're all sort of paying on uh, on a monthly basis and so I mean, sort of break down what's happening here, Chris, and what are some of the privacy and security issues that are going on with these streaming platforms?
5: Yeah, there was a, a great report that came out from common sense media this week, and uh, you know, they discussed uh, you know just what these streaming services are doing with our information. Uh, what you know, what exactly are they are they tracking, and what kind of information um, are they selling? And it turns out, that a lot of various streaming services are actually selling the information about what we watch. Just like when you go and you, you know, you buy something online or you use Facebook, you know, they're selling uh, information as well. So these services, even though in most cases, yeah, we're paying for them, um, they're still giving information about us. They're selling information, packaging it up. Some of the ones they looked at. Hulu, Netflix, HBO Max, Peacock, Amazon Prime, uh, YouTube TV. I mean, pretty much everyone, including Disney and and, um, Apple, are on here, Um, and you know, it really makes us rethink the the consideration of, like, are we, you know, when we're paying for something, we're just having, like, the right, you know, we're just paying for access, right? Uh, and it used to be, right, There's this adage, uh, and, it, you know, it's also quoted in a New York Times summary here that if you don't pay for the product, you are the product. But that's really not the case anymore. Even if you're paying for something now, whether you're paying for Netflix or YouTube or Hulu, uh, you're still the product uh, if we consider Hulu at their base level even if you pay they're still ads right and so how are they targeting those ads to you um, how are they selling companies uh, those ad spaces it's by selling you know promising that they can target ads properly certainly we see that on YouTube even if you're paying for the YouTube uh, premium or YouTube TV so, uh, you know Google owns YouTube and they have that vast you know just trove of information. But it also reminds me, and I tweeted about this this morning, the story about how Netflix uh, decided to do House of Cards. And I think this is really interesting. They, they didn't have a, a creative sitting in a, in a room coming up with concepts. Instead, they looked at the data that Netflix already had from streaming, and they realized people liked political dramas, David Fincher, and Kevin Spacey. Uh, and so they decided they were going to spend a hundred million dollars on what really became the defining show of the non-cable, you know, streaming, uh, TV, uh, you know, era, you know, house of cards, which ran for, for so long. And, you know, it was fantastic TV. Uh, the only issue with it is that it gave gave Kevin Spacey any uh, money and attention. Uh, but they decided to run it and spend a hundred million dollars without even running a pilot which is, you know, typical, you get a pilot episode, you, try, you test it out, um, and they were able to be confident in that choice, a hundred million dollar choice because of the data that they collected on us. Uh, you know, we don't think about this, but this is how decisions are being made at these streaming companies.
1: Yeah, that's, that's wild. That, that's how House of Cards came about. One of my favorite shows on Netflix, um, you know, Kevin Spacey, Notwithstanding, um, you know, it, it's interesting that this advance in technology, Chris, that has helped people cut the cord from massive cable companies are like doing not the same thing, but are are basically creating or uh, contributing to monopoly corporations in pretty much the same way that the cable companies were monopolies Uh, in providing the kind of services and and content that we wanted. But here we have these streaming services that are feeding our private information to these massive corporate monopolies and and it's just making them bigger monopolies because that now they're becoming the uh, repositories for all the things we need and 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 I think that's an aspect of this that is really interesting that I think people aren't quite missing when they get their Roku with their uh, voice activated uh, remote that is a little bit creepy to me. I don't I don't need to talk to my remote control. To, it's got buttons on it. But I, I just find that this just looks to me or feels to me like another kind of uh, feeding into the corporate monopoly culture uh, of this country.
5: Yeah, certainly. I mean, back in the days of, you know, cable TV, they didn't really have a way to track what you were watching or, or anything like that. They basically relied on stuff like the Nielsen ratings. Your self-reporting or later on boxes in your home uh, and you agreed to that, then you got, you know, a little bit of money for doing it. I, I had done it a few times. Uh but now it's these companies can track every little thing. And the whole idea of cutting the cord was, you know, I don't need the, you know, this channel and ESPN eight and and all of that. So I'm gonna save some money, but really we're not saving much money at all. We still need to pay cable companies often, you know, these outrageous fees for home internet, and then we're paying you know, you could pay Pay three, four, five services a month. Um, you know, you're approaching the cost of your your cable bill at that point. So this ideal of, of cutting the cord and being free of the cable company. Well, when you look at media consolidation as well, you know, you're still, you know, you you, you know, Peacock, for example, is NBC's Disney and NBC have a relationship. Uh, so all of these services, you know, are really tied together. It did not end media consolidation.
0: Definitely, and you know. Shifting gears a little bit here, Chris, uh, I wanted to move on to the, the hashtag Apple Two movement um, with the organizers saying that they have uh, collected at least 500 stories of uh, workplace issues that include issues of uh, sexism, racism, retaliation, bullying, discrimination, uh, sexual harassment and other forms uh, of harassment, and even sexual assault. Um, uh, that happened um, uh, from uh, one of uh, their colleagues, uh, I believe, away from the campus. And I was hoping we could sort of uh, break this down because, I mean, you know, uh, I feel like we've talked about before about, you know, how, how toxic like the the, the culture of uh, tech companies can be, even though they have this sort of, you know, uh, glitzy space age kind of progressive sort of uh, uh, image. But, I mean, how do you see this um, hashtag Apple 2 issue of uh, uh, sort of uh, helping to shine some real light on the reality of what things are like for workers within this industry.
5: Yeah, certainly. So Apple to the hashtag. So it's Apple T O O. It's, uh, you know, uh, a reference to the me too movement, uh, when women were speaking out against sexual harassment in all sorts of workplaces or just in, in, their daily life. And I, I sent you another article too, Sean, that I think was just interesting to, to look at from JSTOR Daily that talks about how programming was uh, not a boys club that we, the, you know, the boys club that we consider it today. It actually was women's work until it became, you know, interesting and it was clear that there is money in it and men took it over. And I think that's important context to talk about, you know, the Apple II movement. Uh, there are, you know, there are a number of things that have led to this. To of the um two of the people who are speaking out the most are Cher Scarlett and Ashley uh, they're both Apple employees, you know, at, in various departments. Uh, and they have been, you know, documenting and organizing internally at Apple. And, you know, especially for uh, Ashley Jovic, you know, she outlines that she tried to go through internal processes with human relations, HR, with ER, which is employee relations, with her manager and with others before going public. She didn't want to necessarily go public. Um, but there have been uh, issues with corruption at Apple and whistleblowing and retaliation for whistleblowing. There have been issues with just general workplace safety in return, you know, in response to Apple saying that employees had to come back to the office. Uh, and Apple has really not handled any of these things, including, uh, you know, cases of sexual harassment and sexual assault. In fact, they put um, Ashley Gujovic on uh, on paid leave, in order to silence her, but she has now taken to Twitter. There is the, uh, the you know, so this Apple II movement is also taking on this uh, this idea that Apple staff should be able to talk about their pay, that there should be pay equity within this giant company, and there's no reason for there not to be. And in fact, it's illegal uh, to pay men and women differently for the same job. And so Apple said, "Well, we're shutting down this employee survey." That share uh, Scarlet and some others have been running, um, and so these two issues really are coming together. They're they're really dovetailing each other, and the movements have, in a sense, merged into this you know Apple II umbrella. Um, what we're seeing, you know, it's really significant uh, in the you know. In the, you know, the tech world, we've seen other companies, you know, Google employees, uh, you know, Amazon and and so many others, Microsoft, you know, stage walkouts and have uh, protests and and do organizing and, you know, attempts to unionize. uh, And many of those things have been successful, you know, short term and then, you know, long term. But this is really the first time we've seen something public like this from Apple. Um, and in terms of you know, why that's so important uh, and why I bring up this history of women in programming as well, um, if we look at the history of Apple, it was very much a, a very quiet, uh, you know, non-public company. You had the face of Steve Jobs, who you know, ruled with an authoritarian kind of iron fist, by the way. Uh, and the, and that's the reason why people didn't talk about what happened in the company, was because he created this you know terrifying um, you know sort of environment for the staff. But of course, Steve Jobs uh, died about a decade ago, uh, and employees are seeing you know that other companies are now standing up. And they're being inspired by those other, by their their you know fellow workers at Google and Microsoft and elsewhere to standing up at Apple and saying, you know, what, we can go public about this. There are more workers at Apple than there are managers. There are more workers than there are executives by far. And if Tim Cook doesn't show up to work, nothing nothing happens. No one loses anything. But if uh, you know Cher Scarlett and Ashley Gajovic and the hundreds and thousands of others who are supporting them publicly or privately don't show up to work, then we don't get a new iPhone next year. We don't get, you know, Apple TV streaming services. We don't get, you know, updates to our systems. Apple doesn't make money, basically. They're the ones who provide all these products that so many of us use on a daily basis. And it's really exciting to see this coming, particularly at, at Apple.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back, so please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: And today we're talking about celebrity worship, culture, capitalism and the diversity economy. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Salifu Mack, an editor at Hood Communist and a member of the Low Country Action Committee and the Black Alliance for Peace. Salifu, thanks
6: so much for joining us. Good morning, y'all. Thank you all for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely.
0: And we're excited to have you, Salifu, because you recently published a piece on hoodcommunist.org entitled Understanding Exploitation Through the Saweetie Meal. And for those who don't know, uh, Saweetie is a young rapper known for, you know, uh, making songs uh, uh, over popular beats like her song Tap In was over two shorts, Blow the Whistle. Uh, She had another song, My Type, which was over Petey Pablo's Freak-a-leak. But uh, she recently has this uh, uh, promotional deal with McDonald's and, and this is not the sort of first thing of its type for McDonald's to have done. I saw they did a similar thing with um, popular rapper Travis Scott and uh, some other artists as well. And, uh, you know, you took an interesting angle in this piece of food that I appreciate because you're not really so much talking about um, you know, uh, uh, like the food or McDonald's or, or anything like that, per se, or really like analyzing Sweetie's music or anything like that. You're really sort of using um the Sweetie deal and McDonald's whole sort of uh, a diverse celebrity thing that they're doing here to sort of talk about how celebrity centered analysis on progress and this kind of vicarious success that we're supposed to feel through them is a, a sort of exemplified by the sweetie meal. And I have to say, what kind of something I found interesting about it on a superficial level was the fact that, you know, there's, there's no new food items here. Like this is the same <laughs> McDonald's menu. They're just like kind of helping you quote unquote remix it. And, but, but even right. that I think is an aspect of this that you cover and, and you talk about a kind of, how the network of exploitation works here through four main vectors. It's Saweetie herself as the, the celebrity figure in question, media in the black business class, McDonald's workers and the colonized African masses. And I feel like there's a lot there, Salifu. So just help us understand, like what do you think is the reality of how these kinds of things sort of kind of uh, exemplify a certain form of capitalist exploitation?
6: Absolutely. So I want to say first and foremost that like this, this, this is predatory. It's predatory marketing, right? And and it's, it's exploitation. Um, Two of the main reasons why I decided I even wanted to sit down and write this thing just on a personal level. First, you know, I have uh, lots of younger cousins, little cousins, as I'm sure most people who listen to your show have kids, nieces, nephews. And so day to day, we see kind of the impact of this kind of marketing has on them for me personally with my with my my little cousins, you know, they see sweetie got a meal, so it's like, oh, take me to McDonald's. Like I'm trying to get the sweetie meal. You know what I'm saying? And 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 I feel like other people could relate to that. And for the most part, we're taught to approach that kind of that kind of marketing or that kind of call to come into a store as like a very sort of innocent thing. You know what I mean? It's just it's just pleasure for the kids. It's just pleasure for the kids. Um and then the other thing, the other reason why I decided I wanted to write it is because once the meal was announced, I noticed that a lot of really smart people were coming out the gate, having really important conversations about how Saweetie was allowed to do this kind of thing based on like desirability, right? Because she's pretty and she's thin, well, you know, conventionally attractive and she's thin. And it, a, a plug, like a light bulb went off in my mind where it was like, yes, all of those things are true, but also I don't want anybody to have access to the ability to exploit our people based on how you look, based on like how people feel about you, your body. I don't want anybody to have that. And I don't think that that is a goal that anybody really should be, um, aspiring to. And so I laid out, I laid out this, um, I laid out this article based on those four sort of vectors, as you mentioned before, because what I really wanted to illustrate was ultimately at the end of the day, everybody gets a check off this. Accept the people who have to prepare the food and accept the people who are spending their hard earned money being called to the store to participate in this event.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you pointed out that, you know, everybody gets to check off this because, uh, of course, the first vector in this uh, uh, exploitation model is the the celebrity themselves the sweetie and, and you can interchange the celebrity with anybody it doesn't have to be sweetie because apparently McDonald's has used this model uh, this promotion with other uh, celebrities with you know BTS uh, an international mm-hmm. k-pop boy band uh, had this deal with McDonald's. So it, it, this is not, you know, a dig on Sweetie in particular, or, you know, her as a person, but just the fact that celebrities who are used in this scheme, in this promotional screen, yes, they get paid, but they're also being exploited in this, as you point out. So explain how that is.
6: Right. So this is this is like really this is like a really basic and this is the reason why I chose to talk about this first in the article because it's the easiest for people to understand. Under capitalism, the way that capitalism works, profits always need to exceed what you put out. So you don't want to ever spend more money making a thing than you will getting back because you need profits. That's the entire goal of capitalism. It's not to make sure everybody's paid well, it's not to make sure your employees have You know, healthcare or insurance or places to live. It's about bringing in profits so that you can use those profits and invest in making more profits. That's how capitalism works. And so, at that first tier, which is the celebrity themselves, Saweetie is going to generate so much money in sales for McDonald's just by letting them use her face, her likeness, her voice, her appearing in these commercials, so much money. And so, what I wanted to do was use what uh, BTS was paid, which was about $8.89 million, which, I, as I lay out in the article, is a drop in the bucket for a billion-dollar company like McDonald's, a billion-dollar corporation. I feel like sometimes we use the word billion, but we don't really understand that the human mind hasn't really evolved to wrap its mind around just what one billion actually is And McDonald's is a corporation that brings in hundreds of billions of dollars every year. So just at that first step on its face, the celebrity, the artist can never actually get paid what they're worth because that's not how capitalism works.
0: Exactly. And that's what helped me understand why there aren't any new food items, because this is like a cost cutting, you know, uh, a tactic. They don't have to spend any extra money and they're going to make money hand over fist By, you know, uh, using the image and likeness of this celebrity, uh, which is going to come down again to the labor of the people in uh, these different McDonald's stores and all of that. And and there's a I wanted to get to the point about how this um, impacts the masses of poor and working class black folks in the U.S. And I'm actually going to read a quote that I thought uh, uh, really drove this home from your piece, Salifu, where you said from the happy meals our parents take us to get after a doctor's appointment in elementary school to the McDonald's drive through being our first job to McDonald's serving as the place we go to get something sweet while fighting the stress of adulting to become the location of our kids' third birthday party once we hit our 30s in communities like the one where I'm from, McDonald's is inescapable. It looms over our lives as if it was naturally occurring. And that's a fact because once I was reading like their little mission statement or whatever about why McDonald's wants to do like diversity blah 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 blah, I immediately thought about their like uh uh McDonald's 365 thing they do like for Black mm-hmm. History mm-hmm. Month and you mm-hmm. see the commercials like the brother with the smooth voice like McDonald's in the black community. <laughs> and it's and it's so wild because it's like, well, yeah, like McDonald's is are, are in black communities physically, but they're presenting it as if it's some kind of, you know, (laughs) deep grassroots connection that black folks are are somehow benefiting for. But you make the point that um, McDonald's is in these black communities where, you know, that are oftentimes literally food deserts where there aren't a lot of um, options for, you know, wholesome food or or healthy uh, food items or or things like that. I mean, I know in places like Southeast D.C., you know, there aren't nearly enough uh, grocery stores uh, for the population of people that Live there and things like this. And it's a part and parcel of, I mean, a capitalist system that purposefully um, keeps these uh, resources for people as a means of uh, generating profit. And so it's kind of a frankly sick way that these corporations develop a kinship or create the illusion of a kinship with the people in the community to make them think that there's something to benefit or trying to create like an emotional bond with a faceless right. corporation. And it's all just part and parcel of a broader hustle that helps keep these black communities unhealthy and keeping their pockets nice and fat.
6: Right. And I just want to say, I guess like to everything that you just said, we got to call things what they are, right? Like I, I, When I wrote this piece, I wanted to be intentional about not shaming black people for our consumption habits. Absolutely. Like I lay out, McDonald's has created the conditions for us to be dependent on it. But we have to call things what it is. McDonald's is killing us. McDonald's is literally killing us. And so it is really insidious that they continue to put on its face and smile and dance and chuck and jive as if they are here for the Black community. And the other thing that I wanted to add is that I didn't really get to lay out in this piece the way I want to, but it needs to be said, once upon a time, hip-hop would have served as a voice to push back on this kind of thing. And I think it's really scary that we're in a position now where we, Our rappers, our hip-hop artists can be used to sell death to us. And we don't even think anything odd about that. We don't even call these people sellouts anymore. We don't, we don't push back on this. We don't look at them weird about this. We've been indoctrinated into a culture of chasing the bag. So what Saweetie is doing is actually a good thing for us.
0: Chasing the bag. That is something that particularly the, the, the young people, the, the Gen Z folks are, are all about. And it's like the whole consciousness is just shaped around you know the pursuit of material things and and the, the whole of the culture uh, I think promotes that. And I think what I really appreciated about your piece, um, Salifu is, you know, you give this great analysis, but you point to the solution and the solution being, um, radical grassroots organizing, because that is how we can. And we see this, I think in different cities and, 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 and locales across the country of grassroots organizations that are doing things like community gardening and just helping to bring people um, the resources that simply aren't there. And how that kind of, you know, care, if you want to call it that, becomes then, you know, another means by which we really organize communities around our our interest, our real interest that, you know, corporate entities like McDonald's have absolutely no interest in.
6: Absolutely. At the end of the day, the land that we are on, on is McDonald's land. So we can't defeat McDonald's without reclamation of the land on which we walk every day. That's a fact.
0: Well, we thank you so much, Salifu, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. we we'll are move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: So by any means necessary, join Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh yes, we're here, we're back, top of the hour. It is Tuesday, August 31st, 2021. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, Libra, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can reach out.
1: That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's you, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington DC. They can do that at 320 PM Eastern Standard Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But they can also hit us up on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, hopefully soon again, at BAM Necessary. Our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rating from you. They can hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. They can listen to us. Live on SputnikNews.com and on the radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, we are very happy to be joined
0: for the hour today by John Jeter, award-winning journalist and foreign correspondent, radio and television producer, bluesologist and decolonizer, and author of the book, Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Sean. Absolutely. And, You know, John, uh, just yesterday, U.S. Attorney Merrick Garland called on, quote, the entire legal community um, to help prevent evictions. And this is, of course, following the decision from the U.S. Supreme Court with its uh, conservative majority, um, rejecting uh, the extension of the federal moratorium that would have ended in uh, early October. And in doing so, uh, putting millions of people at risk for being put into The streets, Um, uh, she said, quote, uh, that this is to supposed to, quote, ensure access to justice for vulnerable tenants. And, you know, what's bothersome to me about this is that when I'm reading the media reports around uh, Merrick Garland's comments, um, I keep seeing this language on different media platforms about unnecessary evictions and how the issue is unnecessary evictions. And that's bothersome to me, John, because I mean, in my humble opinion, all evictions are necessary, unnecessary. You don't ever have to kick someone out of their house. You don't ever have to shut off their water. You don't ever have to shut off their lights. You don't have to do any of that. And it just makes me think about how this capitalist system so manipulates our thinking to where it it really has us believe that things like evictions are completely unavoidable and absolutely have to happen as if something bad will happen if people don't get evicted and it's all to create this anxiety around rent and 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 bills and things like this so so much of our time and energy is put into labor right that We don't even really have time to think about, well, why is it necessary exactly? I remember Martin Luther King saying, um, you know, he asked the question, why do we have to pay a water bill on a planet that's mostly water? You know what I mean? And so it just seems like a big part of what keeps this system intact is this uh, lie that nothing can ever really change. And furthermore, that the system is actually perfect the way that it is. And that if people are harmed by it, well, I mean, you know, them's the brakes, you know, it it just be like that. You know what I mean? And the truth is, um, there is the power within this government to uh, put a, I mean, not only just like a ban on evictions, but they could also cancel the rent if they wanted to. And that's the sort of real sticking point. Um, is that uh because of particularly I think the financial interests of these ruling class politicians and their sponsors who are the corporate landlords and things like that, just like on so many other issues, for this government to critically address the housing issue would affect their bottom line. I mean, it would socket to their pocket it, it would keep them from, you know, uh enriching themselves based on the suffering of the masses of poor working and oppressed people. And so the fact that evictions, in any case, but particularly under the conditions of a global pandemic, right, the fact that it's even a question, I think sort of helps show the true nature of this capitalist system and all of its brutality and and inhumanity, because, you know, the solution is right there but to actually engage the solution would be an indictment on the system itself.
7: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with every word, Sean. Um, the, the Marxist economist, Richard Wolff is fond of telling a story about how he got a PhD in economics by attending, I think it's Stanford, Yale and Harvard, three of the elite institutions of higher learning in the world. And, To obtain his PhD, he was not required to read a single word of Karl Marx. And that's really telling, not necessarily because economists should be Marxists, but shouldn't they be familiar with the preeminent critique of capitalism in the world um, even today? Uh, And and the reason they're not is because uh, they don't want to have this conversation exactly as you're As you said, we don't want to have a conversation or or even raise the questions that we need to answer right now, which is, um, you know, why do we pay rent? Why exactly uh, is there something called private property, particularly as it pertains to things such as housing, as um, uh, water, as electricity? Uh, Why is the internet uh, owned uh, by private interests? These are things that serve a public good. Everyone needs them. Uh, and it's a conversation, quite frankly, that they're having all over the world outside the United States, particularly in the developing world, throughout Africa, throughout Latin America. They're having this conversation constantly. Uh, and the reason is this uh, capitalism is unsustainable, uh, even at its best, right? Uh, it's a system of accumulation by dispossession. Uh, you don't have to be a Marxist to understand that that's not sustainable ultimately. There's, there comes a the point where you've taken so much that people can't give you anymore, And that's where we are. And that's what, you know, when people talk about neoliberalism, that's what this system is. It's a system that has guaranteed profits. It's actually socialism for capitalists. It's guaranteed the profit of big businesses. And having having done that for now almost 40 years, we're at a point where people just don't have anything else to pay. We're all tapped out, or most of us are tapped out. Uh, And so... What, what we're not saying uh, is deafening, right? Uh, which is that we're at the end. We don't have any answers. We have a uh, public health crisis, which a privately owned and managed healthcare system cannot address. We have uh, um, a, 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 a private economy, a privately owned economy in which uh, uh It collapses when people aren't able to work. And so we need to sort of talk about how do we reorganize this where the economy, Frantz Fanon used to always talk about, and and, and others, but France Fanon, I guess most prominently, used to talk about does the economy uh, do, do, are people the tool of the economy or is the economy the tool of the people? And I think we need to start talking about how do we make the economy the tool of the people? That's the conversation we need to have. That's the conversation that's not happening in any public way. And we, we're not going to we're not going to move ahead. We're not going to move the needle forward until we have that conversation.
1: Yeah. And in particular, when we're talking about housing, you know, I'm I'm remembering <laughs> Bill Clinton and his evisceration of uh, welfare as we knew it in this country uh, back in 96, I think, and how so much of that was centered around housing and 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 also uh, elements of the crime bill and uh, making it impossible for people who were convicted of federal drug crimes to qualify for public housing. And I think that may have been like the moment in the modern history of this country where even working class and poor people, bought into this argument. Well, maybe not so many poor people, but definitely some working class folks and the petty bourgeois really, really bought into this argument, John, that if you don't work hard enough, if you don't work, then you don't deserve housing. And I, 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 was, I was just thinking about that as like this pivotal moment, Bill Clinton's presidency and what he did to poor people uh, and, and the working poor in this country through that legislation and how that was like the major stepping stone. It, it, I think I feel like it opened the floodgates almost to the very conversation we're having right now because of the conditions that we're facing where people are actually having an argument about whether it's OK to not evict people during a global pandemic. I, I don't know. What well, what are what are your thoughts about Clinton's policies during that time? Pretty much, you know, opening the floodgate for this social consciousness that it's okay to make people homeless.
7: I, you know, Bill Clinton um, was kind of a teacher for me in a lot of ways, uh, although the lessons were almost always negative. I, I arrived in Washington to work for the Washington Post the same month as Bill Clinton, January of 1993. And I covered the welfare uh, overhaul in 1996, 25 years ago this month when Bill Clinton signed that legislation. And and the thing that Bill Clinton taught me, I suspected, but Bill Clinton confirmed it, which is that uh, we really have to contextualize Bill Clinton and the welfare overhaul and NAFTA and everything else. We have to contextualize it historically. And you think about, you go back to the New Deal and you have this uh, great uprising of the people, black and white, and they increase production. They make, they turn bad jobs into good jobs, meaning that they pay fairly decently. The workers have some say so in the workplace and the products that they produce. We start to peel that back under Reagan, who says, you know, white people don't trust those black people, uh, stay away from them, uh, and and they begin to uh, uh, dispossess the working class, beginning with. The black community. Bill Clinton comes in office. He doesn't have the imagination to say, OK, we can rebuild the Democratic Party so that we rebuild the New Deal coalition. He says, no, we're going to compete against the Republicans for the white vote. He, he says this almost explicitly. If you look at his um, poster, read his poster, Stanley Greenberg and his work in Macomb County, Michigan, which is the home of. Uh, thought to be the home of the Reagan Democrats, whites who voted for Republicans. Um, And and what Bill Clinton did was he took, he retooled a productive economy that no longer relied on on industrial jobs, industrialization. It was a post-industrial, or becoming a post-industrial state. And so the question is, how does capital make money when people aren't working? And Bill Clinton Filled in those gaps clumsily, but he did it. And so, if you look at uh, welfare reform, think about 1996. The economy was humming to an extent, right? There, were, everyone was working. The 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 the, um, the um, everyone was working. The wages were, were low, but everyone was working as it made that transition to a post-industrial state. But uh, Bill, what Bill Clinton did was he created this completely dysfunctional uh, 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 economy, which is based on uh, what the French call rent-seeking, right? And so you've got uh, subprime mortgages, which is just usury, loan sharking, basically. You've got, uh, you push people out into the workforce with no protections. That's what welfare reform did. It pushed poor people, mostly black, uh, or, or many black, many black women, especially, into the workforce uh, without any kind of safeguards or protections and what are we working for really right? We're working for people who don't add value to our work. we're working for people who just exert power over us right what 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 is the purpose of uh, uh, work that's not fulfilling that doesn't create for us? we're just making someone else rich and these are the conversations that we don't have and they've been delayed they've been delayed uh by Bill Clinton by, and by the media, which refuses to have this conversation about what's really going on. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, welfare reform is really, I think, a turning point, along with the Clinton administration as a whole. It was really a turning point in how we see ourselves, how we see the world, and what's inevitable, what's possible. That was the turning point, was Bill Clinton. Uh, We no longer sort of have a good grasp of what's possible and what's not. And so we all sort of continue down this road, right? Continue down this road, which leads to an abattoir, right? We're all like headed for this slaughterhouse and we don't have a conversation about, Hey man, how do we turn back or how do we, you know, hit another road? We don't have that conversation. That's where we're at.
0: Yeah. And you know, I'm glad you raised this issue of people being fulfilled by their work. Now people, there are people who will hear that. And maybe roll their eyes and think it's just some kind of, you know, empty, sentimental sort of bleeding heart thing. But it's but 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 it's a really, I think, important thing. And and you mentioned uh, uh, Karl Marx earlier. And it makes me think of his um, theory of alienation. When when we talk about workers relationship to their labor and what they produce. Right. And the truth is, under U.S. capitalism, people often feel no real connection To the work they do or whatever it is that they may produce. I mean, think of all the people that we know where you ask them, well, what do you do for a living? And and they can describe like like literally physically what they do. But in terms of like what's the point of it or like what like what what comes on the other end or what's it for? A lot of times people don't even know. And it don't really matter. Because they're getting paid to just kind of fiddle around for 40 hours a week. You know what I mean? And, and you know, and, and so this is what creates such a uh, discontent, I think, and why so many people are so um, unhappy with the work that they do and when so much of our lives are, are spent doing this work that we don't even know the sort of end goal of it. I mean, that takes a toll on people. It takes a toll, I think, on people mentally, um, emotionally. I think it can have an impact on uh, communities over time in terms of how people are uh, uh, relating to each other. And um, but I think this is sort of a consequence of. Uh, capitalism too in this way, you know what I mean? And so it, 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 it sort of, you know, it needs labor to function. It needs the labor power of working people to sort of, uh, continue to, uh, uh, operate, but it, 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 that, that labor isn't placed like in a strategic way. Like it just is. You know, and it's the the weirdest thing. And it's just like how you see people say, you know, well, you know, you don't hate Mondays. You hate capitalism. Well, that's because after a while, I mean, I think there's a real sort of a a visceral reaction because at some subconscious level, you know, people know that, you know, what they call work is just kind of, you know, busy work in, in a sense. And that's just not it's not healthy for um, a society. I mean, there's so much that um, people could be doing, and all these uh, sorts of things. And so, I mean, when we have a look at that and how the nature of the system sort of robs people of the ability to have a connection to uh, uh, the work that they do, I mean, I think it just sort of shows how um, capitalism not only distances or creates gaps between people and their labor. I think that this is an extension of why, um, uh, so many workers c- can have an issue with even their own self conception, because it can even separate you from your, your notion of who you are as a human. And is this all I am just sort of working myself to death and things like this, you know what I mean?
7: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the, 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 the idea of alienation, how capitalism, how capitalism alienates us from, our true selves from each other from our from nature, even right uh, and, and and this is, I think, uh, a form of death, as Mark said, you know it's a form of um spiritual death, uh, which is in some ways just as bad as physical death, right? uh dead men walking, we're a nation of dead men and women walking, right uh, i'm I'm reminded of uh, a book I read recently. Uh, and I can't remember the name of it, but uh, after the Second World War, when the industrial strikes really picked up, uh, one of the most active moments in history in terms of industrial activism, labor strikes, organized labor organizing, and there was a supervisor at a UAW at a, at a UAW uh, plant, uh, car uh, auto factory, and he wrote to a friend that it was just terrible the way the workers treated the bosses. He said basically that the workers, he said, man, the workers call the bosses everything but a child of God, basically. Right. Like they just sort of, they, you know, it's complete contempt. I I would argue that's a good thing. Right. I think that's people who are thinking differently about themselves and their work and their relationship to capital and raising the critical question. Why do any of us need bosses? Why do we need to pay rent? Uh, why, don't the, why do the workers do 100% of the work and only get 40% of the income? That's the critical question. You can call me a communist or, or, or an anarchist, whatever you want to call me. Uh, I dare anybody to answer that question and come up with a satisfactory answer. I dare anyone.
0: Yeah, I mean, the idea of the workers being mean to the bosses. I mean, you're I mean you the person who, like, oversees this exploitation of their labor, and you literally have the power to, like, rid them of this uh, uh, means of them supporting themselves, but they're mean, being mean to you. Like, yeah, okay. Uh, we're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., we'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Phone lines are now open, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Mon continue to be joined by John Jeter. And John, a little earlier in our conversation, you were talking about the character of accumulation under capitalist production. And you described it as accumulation by dispossession. And I feel like that's a very good distillation of how the very roots of this system and the history of it connects and continues to the exploitation that we see today. Because I mean, how did the United States even come about? It came about through a genocide of indigenous people. And a key part of that was dispossessing them and displacing them from the land and resources that they had utilized since time immemorial. What is manifest destiny? That's accumulation by dispossession. What is slavery? You kidnap a people from the land of their birth, force them to another country, dispossessing them from their homes, their lands, their languages, their religions and spiritual systems, their culture, all of that and placing them in an entirely different container, right? And then uh, with the issue of the different immigrant groups that come to this country. I mean, it's all sort of that dispossession, I think, just in somewhat different forms. But that act, that process, rather, of the dispossession is so crucial to the maintenance of the capitalist system. Because once we understand that the ultimate aim of the capitalist system is to maximize profit, well, then you can't just let people keep their stuff (laughs) because uh, that's going to impact the bottom line. You know what I mean? And so when understanding sort of the true character of the capitalist system, not what they lied to us about our whole lives, it's just uh, uh, clear, John, that for this system to be maintained and for it to be sustained. It means a constant, nonstop theft from humanity at just about every level.
7: It's a kleptocracy. I mean, and uh, and what I mean by that is it's the state stealing from the majority of the population, the working class. But what I think that the, the uh, I, you know, I see this constantly uh, in social media, this conversation, this so-called debate about, you know, whether it's class or whether it's race, the, the conversation is, is an academic one and really rather silly, I think. Yeah. Right. The, the, the what gives the United States uh, its distinctive flavor, right? Like capitalism everywhere is this conversation. It's this um, uh, dialectic between the masters and the slaves. But in the United States, and this is true of some other countries as well, particularly in the Americas, Brazil, most notably, I would say, um, in the United States, uh, the half of the slaves think that they are the masters. Mm. That's the fundamental problem in the United States. We, we can't get a, 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 uh, a majority, certainly, but even if we can get a critical mass of white people to think of themselves as our allies, as the allies of the black and Latino working class. Of the indigenous people who have been genocided, right? If we can get them to think, if you think about it, the 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 I, I'm this is not a this is not to disparage people from Europe. This is the idea of race and why race was even created. Whiteness, right? There were, as as Theodore Allen tells us in The Invention of the Working Class, in his famous book, The Invention of the Of the White of the White Race. I'm sorry. He tells us there were no white people uh at Jamestown right. uh, in 1492. There were none listed in the book or none registered in the book. Uh so why was it created? It was created for for whites to see themselves as a thing apart. So that when when uh you know when blacks start talking about, look, man, you know, if we get together, we can take them. If we can, <laughs> we they get they get 60% of our of our paycheck. We can take the whole thing. And white people are most of them, right? Most of them. Uh, are sitting there saying, What do you mean we black men? You know, what I mean this is the problem, right? We can't, we can't get over it, we can't get around it because we don't talk about it. There's no conversation. We we pretend it's this culture of pretend that's propagated by the media, by our schools, which won't teach critical race theory, which is just history, right. historical fact, right? They're not teaching any kind of witchcraft uh, or alchemy or anything like that. We can't get past it because we don't talk about it, right? This is what James Baldwin used to always talk about. What else are we gonna talk about? If we can't talk about that, and so we're just stuck, man. Until the until the other shoe drops, and then we're gonna have a choice between fascism and socialism. You know, I, I I won't even say which one I think we'll probably choose first. Although I think ultimately we're gonna have to sort of have a socialist system at some point because, as this crisis, the COVID crisis has shown, there is a definite disastrous endpoint for capitalism. There's a point at which the people have to own the land, their resources, and their own labor. And we can't just be working for someone to make them. We just, we can't, we can't afford Jeff Bezos. We can't afford uh, Warren Buffett. We can't afford these people. We just can't. We've been carrying them for 400 years uh, and we just can't carry them anymore. They got to carry their own weight.
1: Yeah, you know, John, and I'm wondering how you are seeing the ability of those working class, poor, and oppressed group of people that we've been talking about to. M- to making the realization that, yeah, not only can we not carry Bezos and and, and Elon Musk and, and, you know, the Bransons and, and the, the Walton families uh, of this country, but we also can't tolerate too many more of these politicians who are very intentional in being the gatekeepers of this system that is, you know, clearly dispossessive of just people's human dignity and their rights to, uh, you know, the basics in humanity. And I'm thinking about what's going on in, in Louisiana right now. Another hurricane that has hit the Gulf region and and not just Louisiana, also in, in the Caribbean. But if we're just talking about, uh, you know, uh, 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 CONUS politics in inside the borders of this uh, particular territory. I mean, the governor of Louisiana first said, look, in the first 72 hours. Don't call us. You know, we can't do anything for you. And then people who have evacuated, (laughs) who could evacuate. Now he comes out and says, look, if you've evacuated, Don't come back because many of the life supporting infrastructure elements aren't present. They're not operating. If you've already evacuated, don't return here or anywhere in southwest Louisiana until the Office of Emergency Preparedness tells you it's ready to receive you. There are a million people without power today. Almost all of New Orleans, uh, Mississippi in general, has about 60,000 Customers without electricity. Uh, obviously, this raises concerns about vulnerable people. No electricity for air conditioning in this heat, and I, I just cannot imagine, John, that the people who weren't able to leave, the people who are stuck there in New Orleans with the flooding and the destruction of their homes, with a governor who is saying. We can't do nothing for you. I cannot imagine that people are not having this conversation in their heads. I'm tired of these people who we keep electing and this government that we keep paying our taxes to telling us they can't do anything for us, especially in our time of need. Do you get the sense that the converging crises, climate crisis, COVID and, you know, the never ending march of police terrorism and, and all the other things is raising the consciousness among working class and poor people that, you know, enough is enough. And we ought to be getting way more than we're getting from these people who keep telling us they got nothing for us.
7: Oh, God, I hope so. I, I really I hope so. I don't know. I haven't heard it yet. I, I, um, you know, the, the understanding what happened in New Orleans, understand that happened exactly 15 years ago, almost today, day, and nothing changed. The response was the same, which is that the state was inoperative. The state has failed. It can't help you, which, which as you said, why do we pay taxes? You're not because the state is there to guarantee profits. The state is not there. So Entergy, the utility company in Louisiana, haven't they been investing in their infrastructure to withstand a hurricane? Don't they know they get hurricanes in New Orleans and Louisiana? Uh, they have to know these things, but that's not their purpose. Their purpose is to make money, again, to accumulate by dispossession. And that's what's happening. So what I really hope, I mean, what I really pray, what I really think is a the sine qua non of social reformation, social transformation is for working people generally, but black people in particular, because we are the ones who are the most depressed, and the most oppressed are always the engine of change. I hope that we finally sort of shake these chains and and, and sort of resume this conversation that we were having uh, 50 years ago, uh, 55 years ago in the 60s, which is, you know, um, uh, we need our own community. We need to have power over our own community. White people need it too, right? But, but Black people especially need power over their own community. We need our own police and our own schools and decide what our kids are going to be taught and our own rescue workers and our own plan for how we're going to, uh, uh, you know, rebuild after a hurricane. And, uh, and and to do that, to do that. And this becomes kind of painful in some ways because, you know, we were, we were hoodwinked and bamboozled. Right. But part of that, part of that process will be, Will be sort of shaking off the the leadership of what the late great Glenn Ford called uh, the black misleadership class. We have to sort of uh, emerge from their shadow because they're leading us right into the eye of this hurricane, pun very much intended. We they're the ones who are telling us, you know, there's no racism in America, right? And and uh, you know, uh, uh, no, we can't defund the police, and you know, I I, I think this. The the pandemic has really exposed a lot of this, too. I I would never, you know, I certainly believe COVID is real and dangerous and people should mask up. I do. Right. Um, I would not encourage people to get the vaccine because I understand people understand history and and black people especially have some real concerns about. I I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I don't know enough to say whether people should or not. I I have gotten it, uh, although there are some extenuating circumstances behind that. I was not initially predisposed to get it because I understand history. I'm, I don't trust the pharmaceutical companies. I don't trust government. But but we see sort of this this uh, higher echelon of blacks, these Vichy blacks as I like to call them, who are sort of reprimanding black people for not getting the vaccine. That's not going to work for them, right? You're not going to be able to tell people that they should get this vaccine just on your say so. We know what this black misleadership class has done. We know what they're capable of. We see we see Barack Obama. Uh, and his sorry behind partying his partying on Martha's Vineyard with all these white folks. And so now you coming out there saying, well, you know, black people, you just silly. You got you got to get the vaccine. That ain't going to work for you. Right. And so these fissures are becoming more and more sharply drawn. And I hope it results in that conversation, which is, look, man, we need to free ourselves from the from the control, from the authority of white people. But we need to get out from underneath these black people who just parrot white supremacy. I hope that's the conversation that we end up having very, very soon because it's really uh, the rebar of any kind of uh, progress that we're going to
0: make in this country. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I mean, on the point of vaccines, I feel like the, the, the overarching issue, I think regardless of people's attitudes towards vaccines, Well, number one, I want to definitely acknowledge what you said, because that history of medical abuse and torture is what, um, at least on the part of black folks, is what drives uh, a lot of vaccine skepticism, right? And then, in general, even for people in the United States who are not black, uh, who understand how uh, uh, the pharmaceutical companies work and 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 understand how Big Pharma has operated throughout the years, this also creates um, a mistrust. I mean, if we look at how the CDC has operated throughout the pandemic, I mean, very uh, uh, inconsistent about you know the the um, importance of masking and social distancing, like it, it just feels very, very wishy-washy and herky-jerky and clearly feeling very pressured by the Donald Trump administration. All of this drives distrust on top of the fact of the abandonment of the American people under the coronavirus precisely because of um, the relationship between ruling class uh, politicians and and these uh, uh, corporate entities. and so you know, I maintain that if the American people were cared for as they should have been and could have been under this pandemic, and if their lives literally were prioritized over corporate profit instead of you know, uh, bailing out Wall Street, and just giving trillions of dollars to these corporations and things like that, that would happen, then not only do I think many attitudes would be quite different. I think that people who were um, sort of openly anti vax very well may not have mattered because the U.S. seems to think that if this country just kind of gets sufficiently vaccinated by itself, that that will somehow take care of what is a global problem. But that's just not so because we have these patents. We have, you know, all of these things. We have vaccine hoarding happening with uh, 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 the wealthier governments of the world, like the United States, like Canada, and things like this. So as long as these resources and these vaccines and this, this treatment is shut off from most of the developing world, And I think we're going to continue to see the cycle of emerging variants and, of course, the dangerous potential of variants evolving that may be resistance to vaccines. And so and again, you know, big pharma profits off of that as well. You know, we were talking about this with um, Stephen Gowans the 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 other day. But, you know, the fact that this this you know, this this creation of an endless need for vaccines. Means a uh, 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 super profits for them. And so literally the pandemic is exacerbated by the the craven greed of this capitalist system, this bottomless pit that will gladly let people get sick and die if it means that they can turn a buck. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open, 202-521-1320, that's 202-521-1320. I am here, Jackie Luqman is here, Mr. John Jeter is here, and John, not to pivot, too, too much from what we're talking about. But I do want to go back to a point you were making earlier about the consciousness of oppressed people and how we have the slaves thinking they're the masters. Well, when you talked about that, that immediately made me think of, and I don't know if you saw this, but this whole thing, this, this, this ad campaign that Beyonce and Jay-Z did, for Tiffany and company recently, right? And the, the centerpiece for this ad was Beyonce wearing the Hope Diamond, 128 carat oh diamond, while Jay Z sits in a chair with his freeform locks and a Basquiat <laughs> painting in the background, um, specifically is equals the, pie piece. the
7: anti-imperialist piece. Basquiat the anti-imperialist Bas- Basquiat
0: right exactly <laughs> exactly and um so uh Karen Atia actually wrote an opinion piece about this for the Washington Post and I like the title it's a uh, sorry Beyonce but Tiffany's blood diamonds aren't girls best friend and I mean she was highlighting like the real history of the hope diamond and this was something that was discovered in 1877 in South Africa at the Kimberley mine by Charles Lewis Tiffany. And this was part of you know the the British invasion and exploitation of South Africa that sort of set the stage for what later became the system of apartheid. And so this is um this this artifact this blood diamond which has only been worn by four women um, and Beyonce is the first black woman to wear it so and we're you know that that's been played up a lot like we're supposed to feel good about that i believe the last person to wear before beyonce was uh, audrey hepburn um in, in the breakfast at tiffany's movie but when we talk about slaves thinking they're the master here we have you know beyonce black woman descendant of enslaved people here in the united states wearing a literal relic of apartheid and settler colonialism, (laughs) but we're supposed to feel good about it because hashtag black luxury and this uh, culture of celebrity worship that we have in the United States to where we're supposed to not even think about like the glaring contradictions in that, right? We're supposed to not think about the conditions of the Africans who had to dig that rock up out of the ground. You know what I mean? And so, you know, I mean, and I just thought this, particularly what we know about, you know, how uh, Beyonce's clothes are produced in the house of Darion and and all of that. But see, this is how the public is trained. And I think that's an accurate word. We're sort of trained to see something like that and not even consider the history and the context. I think we're taught about this stuff. But the question doesn't even enter our minds. Well, wh- where does a diamond that big come from? Right? Who's responsible for pulling it from the earth and setting it inside of that piece of jewelry? You know what I mean? We're just supposed to marvel at these artists that we like and who we, we're supposed to aspire to. Jay-Z in the world of hip hop is the, uh, is the homo erectus. He is the most evolved form Of someone who went from hustler on the corner Mm. to, you know, literally having a seat at, you know, uh, an inauguration ceremony for the first black president. Right. And so it doesn't matter that he's helping to gentrify his native Brooklyn. All these things don't matter. And it uh, creates a kind of buy in from the public who's exploited by this same system and saying, see, this system is good because this person you like can uh, enjoy this success. Now you ain't getting none of that success, but you can sort of enjoy it vicariously through her. You know what I mean? And so this is like a part of the skewing of the consciousness of poor working and oppressed people under this system <clears throat> to where we see a person of an oppressed group Literally wearing a symbol of settler colonial exploitation, and we are told that instead of of questioning it and criticizing it, that we should do the opposite—that we should, in fact, celebrate it.
7: Yeah, I, you know, um, I, I lived in New York for uh, eight years, and one of the things that surprised me was the real admiration so many young black men have for Jay Z, not necessarily because of his music. But because he was, like you said, he was a self made man. He was a hustler. He got out there and he sort of, you know, sold his work and became made himself what he is, you know, and that is to be admired to some extent, the initiative that he took. But on the other hand, you know, his absence in our struggle, and then when he does appear, he's on the wrong side vis-a-vis uh, him siding with the NFL and against Colin Kaepernick. Uh, at least in the later stages, you know, and discouraging, you know, the protest. Um, and, and it reminds me really of, of uh, again, a, a story I read recently uh, about uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, the Jewish communist couple who were executed in 1953 uh, for selling nuclear secrets to the Russians, which may or may not have happened. If it did, it didn't actually help much in terms of the Russians getting the nuclear bomb, but they may have. Uh, participated in that um, uh, because they were uh, they were white Jews who saw themselves as working class. They did not see themselves as the masters. But I think what's really instructive about the Rosenbergs and the Jewish community at that time was that many many people, including many blacks, were supportive of the Rosenbergs and and protested their executions and their and their sentence beforehand. Uh, Lorraine Hansberry was a huge fan of Ethel Rosenberg, by the way. Uh, and uh, But the Jewish community itself was divided. Here's why. Uh, many of them saw supporting the sentence against the Rosenbergs as an opportunity to be white. And you have to understand, obviously, this is right after the Holocaust. And, and, you know, of course, the Holocaust which is the culmination of, of, of decades of pogroms in Europe, throughout Europe. Uh, many of them deadly against the Jews. And so there were several Jewish organizations which did which supported the executions of the Rosenbergs. And into the 60s, we saw the Jewish community, parts of the Jewish community at least, not all, certainly, uh, but parts of the Jewish community split farther and farther from the black working class. Of course, that synergy in the 30s and 40s was what really caused the New Deal to happen, what really caused the organizing which was the predicate for uh, really the, the 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 most prosperous middle class in the history of the world. It was this Jewish, many of them communist, uh, synergy with blacks uh, that really made that happen. But we saw it sort of start to unravel in the 60s. And that's what we're seeing now, right? That's what uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce see an opportunity to be white, not in terms of culturally, but in terms of uh, economically in terms of privilege, right? And and, and not just uh, Jay-Z, obviously, the Obamas and Kamala Harris and uh, James Clyburn and all these people, uh, these black people who see their opportunity to get their share of the pie, right? Now, that, that's done at the expense of the rest of us. That's not really their concern. They playing, you know, I guess they would say, as Tupac said, I, I was given this world, I didn't make it. And so right. they're they going for there. they trying to get their bag, right? But uh, the, the problem is, much like I think the Jewish community, is that, you know, at some point we have to pay homage to reality. And the reality is that, um, you know, the reality is that, uh, the reality is this question. How did white people, how did Europeans come to own a huge diamond extracted from African soil? Right? I mean, we can't get past that question in, in the real world. And so, Jay Z and Beyonce and everyone else is going to have to answer that. I think fairly soon as well. I think that's a question we're going to have to answer fairly soon because you know people are getting tired. I think pretty soon you're going to see people being evicted, and you know everybody has their breaking point. You know the tyranny it just can't go on forever. As as Martin Luther King said, you know, the "Truth crushed to earth will rise again." Mm. I think we're getting to that point.
1: Yeah, I, I think you are absolutely right, and I'm wondering, John, what your thoughts are on. The answer to this. Right. Because, you know, we're we're led to believe, uh, you know, by these propaganda bombs, I think, as Chairman uh, Fred Hampton uh, used to call them this 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 use of celebrity uh, to pop in and and go, you know, to to the black and oppressed masses. Hey, look, look at this shiny new thing that I'm doing that I have that is that's supposed to that you're supposed to buy into, but actually doesn't add anything to the material realities of our lives doesn't put any money in my pocket, doesn't put any money in your pocket. Not going to keep people from being evicted. So how do we address the the redistribution of the dispossession of our goods, our labor, our lands, our money? How how do we deal with that issue that nobody ever wants to talk about? None of these celebrities ever wants to talk about while they're posing in front of, you know, uh paintings trying to pretend to be uh Basquiat and posing with blood diamonds draped around their neck and, you know, doing performative uh dances at the Super Bowl dressed like Black Panthers-ish sort right. of. Right. Um how how do that they, they never talk about reparations, but but this is a conversation that we're always having about how do we get back the stuff that we have been dispossessed of? So how do we?
7: Oh, boy. Uh, I don't know if we have enough time, but I I, I think uh, and I've written about this recently. I think that we need a robust reparations movement, but one which reimagines the African-American population, certainly uh, as uh, not as workers and not even as capitalists, but as uh As the authorities within our own community, as a sovereign nation, uh, I think we can use certain tools such as the tax increment finance districts, which we see all across the country. Uh, Almost every city uses a version of tax increment finance districts where uh, uh, a certain uh, neighborhood, the tax revenues are frozen at, say, 1990, that level. So everything above that is frozen into a fund, put into a fund. And that is uh, used for pet projects. Uh, In Chicago, they used it to build an arena for DePaul University, which is a private university, private Jesuit university. And the arena is even in the suburbs. So, you know, we see this abuse of it. But it was originally intended uh, by Harold Washington, the first black mayor of Chicago, back in 1983 when he was elected. He originally envisioned tax increment finance districts as being something that could redistribute wealth from the wealthier neighborhoods, to the poor neighborhoods to spark economic development. I think we can use things like that in combination with a Robin Hood tax, in combination with a Medicare for All movement, which of course would be a universal system, but but of course we would benefit from that as well, a basic income grant, to sort of reorient the relationship that Black people have to power where we become, we have, for lack of a better word, these Bantu stands all across the country, a network of them, Southside of Chicago uh, Southeast Washington, D.C., uh, all of Detroit. And we have a certain sovereignty over these. We we say what we're going to teach our kids. We have worker cooperatives, I think. Um, uh, and we make everything that we buy. So we make batteries and we make, uh, um, uh, you know, rugs and hopefully uh, eventually laptops and cards and whatever else that we need. So that money stays in our community. It's a very long conversation. You know, I'm not sure that what I'm proposing is right, but I hope at least it can start a conversation about how we can have a viable reparations movement, and not just one where we're consumers. That's that's the death of us because the United States is, and actually, white-centered colonial colonialism as a whole, is an extraction zone for Black people. It extracts. So no matter how much money they give us, they're just going to claw it back through taxes, through higher loan interest rates on loans. They're just going to claw it back, and so that's not an option in terms of and I know that you know people uh esteemed scholars such as William Sandy Darity at Duke has proposed just this sort of cash remittance for black people as a reparations idea proposal it's not going to work uh we need to think about re reimagining the black community writ large in the United states and and really in, even in the world in the diaspora reimagining the black community as something sovereign
0: yeah and you know, what you said about consumption is important because another trick that is played on us under this capitalist system is we're made to believe that consumption is power. And that's where we get this 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 notion of a quote unquote, you know, black buying power that, you know, Dr. Jared Ball has done a such great work around. And I appreciate that you raised the issue of shifting the power relations of black people in this country. And when you take into account that white supremacy is imperative to the functions of the capitalist system, what becomes very clear is that if what we're talking about is reparations, that I think can only really come about when capitalism is no longer The dominant form of production that it's no longer the uh, uh, dynamic, if you will, that exists in this country and indeed on the world stage because it's an irreconcilable contradiction, in my opinion, because the oppression and exploitation of black people and of poor working and oppressed people is just so much of what makes up this system and helps. It's to continue to function and to sustain it and give it a sustenance in all of these things. And you said it early in our conversation, John, is that there's going to come a point where there'll have to be a real choice between fascism or socialism. And that's very real because what the ruling class knows but won't say out loud is that this country, this system is in crisis. And I think more and more as, as time goes on and as conditions get more and more difficult for people, I think that ultimately that kind of revolutionary conscious is, I don't want to say it's inevitable, but I will say that as organizers, we have to recognize that that is the moment that we're in and continue to organize around that so that when that Moment comes, we'll be prepared. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. want to thank John Jeter so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. So, as always, we'll see you next time. Peace.
2: By Any Means Necessary.